give? What, what motivates us to give? Who is our example in giving? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ, who though He was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. He gave Himself for us to save us from judgment. And He did that out of the abundance of His love and His sacrifice, and so now we are to imitate Him and give toward others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll open the Word of God again and dig deeply into the truth of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, it is such a joy for us to do this week in and week out, to come and open the Word of God together, to sing Your praises, to hear from heaven, to meet with the great God who created heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of glory, and to set our hearts and our focus upon the majesty of Christ and the glory of the Gospel. Lord, we are thankful that though there was a time in which we were blind by sin, we were blinded to the majesty and beauty of Christ, yet You have shown in our hearts, You have given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Your Son. You have taken the blinders off. You have raised us up from spiritual death to spiritual life. At once we hated You, we despised You, we abhorred You, and Your wrath was set against us, but because our Savior gave Himself for us to rescue us from this evil age, because of that, You have saved us by Your grace. We thank You that this Gospel is not some afterthought. This Gospel is Your eternal purpose, which You carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, that You chose us even before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before You, and uh, we're reminded from the song we just sung earlier that Christ will have the prize for which He died. Uh, the fruit of His labor He has seen and will continue to see, and that will come to its full fruition in the eternal state when a people of redeemed sinners gather together in the new heavens and the new earth to worship the One who gave Himself for them. And we are a foretaste of that now. We gather this morning to worship You. And the favorite part of worship for me is to hear from heaven to have the Word of God read and have it preached and listen to it and respond to it. And I pray that as we hear it this morning, you would give me grace to accurately handle the Word of truth and to proclaim it with divine eloquence and that you would give us all the ability to understand it, grasp it, love it, and live our lives according to it. And we pray these things to that end. Amen. Well, all right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me again to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And we come this morning to a passage that I introduced to you last week, namely verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> a passage that deals with the theme of discernment, Christian discernment. As you know, John wrote this letter to the saints of Asia Minor because a group of false teachers there were seeking to deceive them with a counterfeit version of the Christian faith. These false teachers distorted the truth about the person and work of Christ. They denied the necessity of obedience. They denied the centrality of love. They undercut the gospel itself and therefore they posed a dangerous threat to these believers that John loved dearly. And so John responds to this threat by writing a letter that presents a series of tests by which we can distinguish between a true Christian and a false Christian. A series of tests by which we can distinguish between true Christianity 
and a counterfeit version. You are familiar with the test, doctrinal test, moral test, social test, true Christians believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth. And these are the tests by which you can distinguish between someone who is true and someone who is not. And that becomes abundantly obvious in this particular portion of 1 John, a portion in which John specifically warns them about the danger of false teachers. So let's read the text again this morning. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. As I said last week, verse 6 really provides a wonderful summary of the passage. This is a passage about discerning between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It's about testing the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. It's about discernment. As we noted last time, God has revealed Himself in a plethora of ways, many, many ways. And one way in particular that God has revealed Himself is through apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers who declare and explain that self-revelation to His church. God has sent people into the world to proclaim His revelation to His people. The problem is, is that not everyone who claims to be a teacher from God really is. Not everyone claiming to speak the truth is really speaking the truth. There are false teachers in the world who, like their father Satan, twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. And in doing so, they seek to deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. We talked about that last time. That's what they do. They prey on those who are unsuspecting. Those who are gullible, those who are not discerning, those who do not have a solid, sound grasp of the Word. And that's what John's readers were dealing with. They were dealing with a group of false teachers, Gnostic heretics, who claimed to bear the truth, but in actuality they bared lies. They claimed to be messengers of God, they claimed to be from heaven, but in reality they were messengers from hell, emissaries of Satan, purveying nothing more than satanic deceptions. That's what these saints in Asia Minor were dealing with in the first century. And of course, there are many such false teachers in our own day. Those who distort the truth. Those who, like their father Satan, come in crafty and they secretly introduce destructive heresies, as Jude tells us. And in light of that, it is imperative for us that we be discerning. We must exercise discernment. We're not to be gullible. We're not to be foolish, but wise. We're not to be simple, but prudent. We must test the spirits, as John tells us here in verse 1. We're not to believe 
that every person claiming to speak for God really is. Instead, we must test the doctrinal content of teachers to determine if they are true teachers or false teachers. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we distinguish between a true teacher from God and a false teacher from Satan? What is the standard by which we measure such teachers? Well, John answers that in these six verses. In these six verses, he provides us with certain criteria by which you can distinguish between a true teacher and a false teacher. In the passage, first we see the command to test the spirits. Secondly, we see the cause for testing the spirits. And thirdly, the criteria for testing the spirits. The command, the cause, and the criteria. We looked at the first two last week. We'll look at the third one this morning. But before we do that, let me just give you a quick review. First of all, last week we saw the command. The command to test the spirits. Look at verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. John yet again begins with a term of endearment, a term of affection, a term of love. He refers to them as his beloved. They were loved by God, they were loved by John, and it's out of his deep love for them that he warns them of the danger of false teaching. I told you last week that's what any faithful shepherd does. Any pastor who loves a flock is going to warn them of false teaching. He's going to warn them of that which is a danger to them spiritually. And so that's what John does. And his love here issues in a command. Really a twofold command. There's a negative command and a positive command. At first, the negative. Do not believe every spirit. Positive, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, John is saying this. Don't believe just anybody. Don't be gullible. Don't be foolish. Don't just believe that everybody claiming to be from God is a true teacher. Instead, John is saying, examine. Examine their message carefully. Examine their doctrine carefully to see if they are true teachers from God. We cannot just turn off our discernment. We have to be, what I said last week, doctrinal detectives. We have to be always on the lookout for error. The issue is this. Every person who brings a message to you is either teaching from the Spirit of God or from satanic spirits. Either from the Holy Spirit or demonic spirits. The Spirit of truth or the Spirit of error, as John says in verse 6. I told you last time the Spirit of Truth, also referred to as the Spirit of God in verse 2, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit of Error, however, also referred to as the Spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3, that's a reference to both Satan and his demonic host. Satan and other demons. In other words, every person is teaching from one of those two sources. Every message either originates in the Holy Spirit or satanic spirits. And so it is our responsibility then to be discerning, to carefully consider the doctrinal content of any teacher's message to see if he's teaching from God's spirit or satanic spirits. So that's the command to test. But secondly, 
we saw the cause for testing. The cause. What is it that makes testing the Spirit so necessary? Why can't we just believe everybody? Well, verse the latter half of verse 1 answers that. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because, here's the cause, many false prophets have gone out into the world. What is it that makes testing the spirits necessary? The many false teachers, the proliferation of false teachers that exist in the world. They're all around you. They're everywhere. They're on every side. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that there are churches on just about every corner throughout America, and it seems like we should have a wonderful society. What's the problem? The problem is many people who profess to be Christian are not, and many people who profess to be shepherds are not, and many churches that profess to be churches are not. That's the issue. There are false teachers in the world. We talked about these false teachers last week. We've talked about how they're subtle like their father. They're, they're very deceptive like Satan. Just as Satan came into the garden, he didn't come with a trumpet and say, hey, I'm a false teacher. He didn't say, hey guys, there's no God. Instead, he casted doubt on the Word of God and he secretly brought in his deception. That's how he works. False teachers masquerade themselves as messengers of light. In reality, they are messengers of darkness. They claim to be from heaven, but they are from hell. That's what makes them so dangerous. I told you the most dangerous ones are the ones that profess to be Christian, the ones that use Christian lingo, the ones that say they believe the Bible, they believe in Jesus, but they deny an essential element of true Christianity, just like the heretics in John's day. So they're sneaky. We have to be on the lookout for them. They're not just going to identify themselves. We have to test the spirits. But how? Again, how do we determine the true from the false? What's the, what's the test? What is the standard? Well, John is going to give us, in verses 2 through 6, John is going to give us two criteria. Two criteria by which to distinguish between true teachers and false teachers. And that's where we pick up this morning. Two criteria, two tests. We'll look at the first one this morning. We'll look at the other one next week. The two tests are the Christological test and the Bibliological test. The Christological test and the Bibliological test. You say, wait a minute, what in the world does that mean? It's a fancy, systematic, theological word to refer to the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of Scripture. How do you distinguish between a true teacher and a false teacher? Number one, the Christological test. What do they say about Jesus? Look at verse 2. John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Here we go. John is about to tell us how we can know if someone is teaching from the Holy Spirit or not. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every person, every human spirit, every preacher or teacher who comes to you and acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is a true teacher from God. Anyone who confesses the truth about Christ, His message originated in the Holy Spirit. So it's about Christology. What does He say about Jesus? That's where you begin. 
The word confesses here, the word homologeo, it means to say the same thing, to agree. True teachers are those who agree with God about what He says concerning Christ. They agree with God about what He says concerning Christ. Now what is it that God says about Christ? Well, turn for a moment to chapter 5. Chapter 5, just a page to the right. Chapter 5, and I'll start reading in verse 9. John says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. God the Father has testified that Jesus Christ is His Son, that He is the Messiah, that He is the God-man. Verse 10, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Notice that. If you don't believe the truth about Christ, you do not believe God. You are essentially calling God a liar. Because, verse 10 goes on to say, he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. True teachers agree with God. They agree with what Scripture says about Christ. Back to chapter 4 now. True teachers confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that He is the Son of God. Now you say, who in the world would deny that Jesus came in the flesh? That seems odd to us. We don't really deal with that. The humanity of Christ isn't really attacked in our day. It's the deity of Christ that's mostly attacked. No one denies today that Jesus was a man, really, but they deny that He was God. That's the big error today. So who then would deny the humanity and the incarnation of Christ? Well, the answer is the Gnostic heretics in John's day. The false teachers who were seeking to deceive them. And there were primarily two sects of this heresy that John was dealing with. The first one is called docetism. Docetism, from the Greek word dokine, it means to seem. Uh, These people were philosophical dualists. They essentially taught that Jesus isn't really God. Jesus is one of many lesser beings that have come from God, almost like an angel. He's a God, but He's not the God. And He wasn't really a man either. He simply seemed to be a man. That's why you call it docetism from Dokine. He seemed, he appeared to be a man. He was like a phantom or a ghost. Okay, if he wasn't a man, why, why, why when they crucified him, he would bleed from head to toe? Well, there you go. The so he had been man and God. Exactly. Amen. Exactly. The cross. Yeah, was, yeah. Now you're getting to the heart of the problem. Still in my yeah. thunder a little bit. You get <laughs> to the heart of the problem. It's a denial yeah. of the cross, right? But that's what they said. They said Jesus is not really God and he's not really a man. That's what the docetists said. But then you also had the followers of a man named Serenthus. Serenthus. Serenthus taught that the Christ Spirit descended on the man Jesus at His baptism, empowered Him for ministry, but He left Him before the crucifixion. So in, in other words, that's how they get away with that. The man who died wasn't Christ. Jesus really wasn't the Christ. He was empowered by the Christ Spirit. John really attacks that error. So was He man and God or just God? He's fully God and fully man. That's right. Okay, I got you. I got you. <laughs> in chapter 5, John's really going to attack this error, and we'll consider that in detail when we come there uh, in a few months. 
But uh, John outright denies these Gnostic heretics here with a simple statement that true teachers, the Spirit of God, those teaching from the Spirit of God, confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. They confess the incarnation. They confess the humanity of Christ. And as Big John pointed out, to deny His humanity is to deny the atonement. It is to deny the cross. It's to deny the gospel. It's to cancel the cross. Because He came in the flesh to redeem sinners. That was the purpose of the atonement. He was the God-man who came to bear the wrath of God for us, to take the punishment for our sin. And if John's already dealt with that in chapter 2, verse 2, he said that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who satisfied God's justice against us for our sins by dying on the cross. The problem is, if Jesus was not a man, He couldn't have died on the cross. And therefore, the Gospel itself was at stake. The Gospel was at stake. And With the blood, He had to be man and God. So the Gospel was at stake. This is what made their error so severe. It undercut the Gospel. It denied, therefore, the possibility of salvation. The Gospel was under attack. That's what made the humanity of Christ such a major theme in 1 John. It's such a common, reoccurring motif. You remember how John opened the letter. Turn with me to chapter 1, and I'll familiarize you with John's introduction. Chapter 1... And we'll start reading in verse 1. John says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Although Jesus was the eternal word of life, the invisible God, yet He could be seen. How? Because as verse 2 says, the life was manifested. He became flesh. He became incarnate. He became a human being. And therefore, they were able to see Him and hear Him and touch Him. And notice, the one whom they saw, the one whom they touched, the one whom they heard, was none other than the Word of Life. It wasn't some mere man with a Christ Spirit upon Him. It was the incarnate Word. The incarnate God-Man Himself. You can go back to Chapter 4 now. The true teachers confess the truth about Christ. Those who teach from the Holy Spirit acknowledge the Incarnation. John recorded that same truth in the prologue of his Gospel, didn't he? John 1.1, what did he say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 adds, and the Word became flesh. That is the glorious reality of the Incarnation. God became a human being. He became a real man. Not only did He become a man, by the way, in the past, He's still a man in the present. Colossians 2, verse 9 says that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Present tense. He is at this moment in heaven at the right hand of the Father, fully God, fully man, interceding for His people. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And John says all true teachers affirm that reality. They believe that. 
The flip side, of course, comes in verse 3. John adds there, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Anyone who rejects God's testimony about Christ is a false teacher, is purveying satanic deception, is not from God. Notice in verse 2, John says that true teachers confess Jesus is coming in the flesh. But here in verse 3, he says simply that false teachers do not confess Jesus. That is to say, they do not confess the truth about Him. This encompasses more than His humanity and the Incarnation. It also includes His deity. Anyone who denies the true person of Christ is not a true teacher. Chapter 2, verse 22, John says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he says. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So we have to acknowledge that Jesus was the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the one chosen by the Father to be the Savior of His people. And anyone who denies that is an Antichrist, John says. And you say, wait a minute. I thought the Antichrist was just this guy we were waiting for at the end. Perhaps so, but John says there's already many all around you. Anyone denying the truth about Jesus is an Antichrist. We work with them. We go to school with them. We are, they're in our neighborhood. Anyone rejecting the truth about Jesus is an Antichrist. That's what he says in verse 3. Look at verse 3 again. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist. The same spirit that will energize the final Antichrist is the same spirit that energizes all Antichrist. Namely, Satan himself. And that's what John is saying. John is saying, anyone who denies the truth about Christ, His person and His work, that person is not teaching from the Holy Spirit. He is teaching from Satan. He's purveying doctrines of demons, as Paul says in Timothy. 2 Thessalonians 2 says of the final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, that his coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Satan is the one who's going to energize that final Antichrist. And Ephesians 2.2 says he's the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is the one working in, influencing all Christ opposers. Remember, that's what the word antichrist means, antichristos. It just means against Christ, opposed to Christ. So in one sense, every person who's not a believer is an antichrist. There's only two people in the world. It's not what the Jews thought. It's not Jew and Gentile. It's Christian and antichrist. Those are the only two people that exist. But in a unique way, those who are purveying this Christological lie, denying Christ, they're the ones who are antichrist. So we must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. We have to believe He's the Messiah, that He's the Christ, that He's the one anointed by God. But Jehovah's Witnesses would say that. Jehovah's Witnesses would come and they would say, hey, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus became a man. They would agree with that. Does that make them true teachers? Of course not. Why? Because they deny other essential truths about the person of Christ. So we have to believe more than that He's just the Messiah. According to chapter 5, verse 5, John says this, Who is the one who overcomes the world? 
But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, we have to believe that He's the Son of God in the biblical sense. In the sense that He shares the nature of the Father. That He's one with God. That He is Himself God the Son. John 5.18 says the fact that He's the Son of God makes Him equal with God. That's why Hebrews 1 says He's the radiance of His glory in the exact representation of His nature. He is God Himself. Jesus said in John 8.24 to those Jews, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Now what's Jesus doing? Is He using bad grammar there? He went on in verse 58 and said, before Abraham was, I am. Does Jesus need a grammar lesson? We know what Jesus was doing, don't we? What did God tell Moses in the Old Testament? When Moses asked him, what is your name? What did he say? I am. I am who I am. It's the Hebrew verb, Hayah. It's where we get the name Yahweh from. Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be the God of the Old Testament. That's why in verse 59 of John chapter 8, they picked up stones to stone Him because they knew exactly what He was saying. He was claiming to be God. So John says that's how you know a true teacher. He confesses the truth about Jesus. That He's God incarnate. That He's the God-man. God the Son. Second person of the Trinity. So this would include then both the doctrine of the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the hypostatic union is just the biblical truth that within the one person of Jesus there are two distinct natures joined together in that one person. Full deity, full humanity joined together. Fully God, fully man. And it would also include the doctrine of the Trinity because to get Jesus right is to get God right. And the biblical God is the triune God. The fact that there is one God who is one being but exists as three eternally distinct persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And anyone who would deny those truths Anyone who would deny the hypostatic union, anyone who would deny the Trinity, is a false teacher. True teachers confess Christ. Calvin said this, Christ is the stone at which all heretics stumble. That's where they go wrong. John MacArthur says, all false teachers have an erroneous Christology. They all get Christ wrong. They either deny the truth of His person or His work. They either deny His full deity, His true humanity, or His saving sufficiency. But in some way or another, they err when it comes to Christ. They do, as Jude says in Jude verse 4, they creep in unnoticed, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. That is the hallmark of a false teacher. He denies the truth about Jesus. So John says in verse 3, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and now it is already in the world. All unbelievers are Antichrist. In a unique way, false teachers who distort the truth about Jesus are Antichrist. And that's what John is warning us about. These deceptive heretics who would seek to bring you in by way of delusion, by way of Subtle deception. So John says, there is a final Antichrist to come, by the way. You've heard that it is coming. 
And I, you know, a few months ago, we spent a whole sermon on verse 18 of chapter 2. We talked about the Antichrist, and I identified him for you as the papacy, the Pope. But there's a final Antichrist to come, John says. But there are already many, and our focus should be on the many that are already around us, regardless of your view of the final Antichrist. John says, be on the lookout. Test the spirits to see if they are from God. So that's the Christological test. Now what I want to do in the little time we have left this morning is I want to apply that test to our current context. What I want to do is I want to consider three cults. This is just a sample. It's not exhaustive. But I want to consider three cults in our day. And I want to consider what they believe about Christ to determine if they are true teachers from God or false teachers from Satan. The three cults we're going to consider are the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Roman Catholics. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Roman Catholics. So let's start then with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with them. Uh, They're also known as the Watchtower Society. And here's what they teach. They teach that Jesus was God's first created being. Jesus is just a God. He's not Almighty God. He's just a mighty God. In fact, he's Michael the Archangel, they say. And so he's simply an angel who is a God. That doesn't sound like the Jesus of the Bible, does it? That doesn't sound like the Jesus that John is presenting. That sounds more like the Jesus that John is refuting. The Jesus of the Gnostic heretics. The biblical Jesus is not a God. He is the God. The one and only God. And He's not an angel either. In fact, He's greater than the angels. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 tells us. He has wings. Turn with me for a moment to Hebrews chapter 1. A few pages to the left. Hebrews 1. It's in between James and Titus and Philemon. Hebrews chapter 1. And the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter to a group of Hebrews, hence the name, who were professing Christians that were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this letter in hopes that he could encourage them to persevere in Christ. And he begins the letter by highlighting Christ's supremacy over the angels. Chapter 1, and I'll start reading in the end of verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus has a higher position of authority than the angels. He's at the right hand of the Father. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The angels are called in the Scripture sons of God, plural, But Jesus is the Son of God, singular, the only begotten, the only one who shares the very essence of God. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Contrary to being an angel, Jesus is the object of angelic worship. They are commanded by God to worship the Son. And since Jesus said in Matthew 4, quoting from Deuteronomy, that you are to worship the Lord your God and serve Him only, 
For God the Father to command angels to worship the Son is to affirm that Jesus must be God. Verse 7. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice that. The Father refers to the Son as God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. By the way, verses 10 through 12 are a quote from Psalm 102, 25 to 27. That is a passage about Yahweh God. And the writer of Hebrews is applying it to the Son, affirming that the Son is God. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, Jesus is the eternal, uncreated Creator. The angels are, verse 14, ministering spirits sent out to render service to those who inherit salvation. They're servants. They're created beings. Jesus is the Creator whom they serve. He is God. Back to chapter 4 now. So clearly then, the Jehovah's Witnesses failed a Christological test. The Jesus of the Watchtower Society is not the Jesus of the Bible. They're false teachers. So when they come to your door and they knock on your door, run away. Well, don't run away. You're at your own house. Slam the door. You should have a gospel conversation with them if you're equipped to do so. Take them to Hebrews 1 and and try to show them from their own Bible that Jesus is God, but do not buy into their deception. Do not buy what they're selling because they have the wrong Jesus. But what about the Mormons then? What do the Mormons teach? This is a very sneaky group. They epitomize the satanic deception of subtlety and secrecy. In fact, most nominal Mormons who go to church on Sunday at the Mormon churches don't even know what they really believe. But their beliefs are very obvious to anyone who's researched it. The Mormons, are also known as the LDS Church, the Latter-day Saints, they teach that God the Father was once a man like we are. He obeyed the God on His planet, followed the laws of that God, and was exalted to Godhood, and became a God, got His own planet, and now Him and His goddess wife have had, they've populated their planet with many children, by the way, Jesus is one of their children, so is Satan, and so are you and I. Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers, according to Mormons. And so the Mormons teach that God the Father is a glorified man with a body of flesh and bones. In other words, they're a polytheistic religion. There are many gods. You can't even count them. The Father is one God of many. The Son is also one of many gods. But by the way, Jesus is a separate God from the Father in Mormonism. Their understanding of the Trinity, they'll use that word, they don't mean it rightly. They teach that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three separate gods. That's what they believe. That's clearly not the biblical Jesus. And perhaps you're skeptical. Maybe you say there's no way anybody really believes that bogus stuff. There's actually a video you might find every now and then circulating on Facebook. And it's entitled, If the Mormons Told You the Truth, 
And uh, it had them actually knock on the door and tell them the truth, and the woman was like, and she slammed the door in their face. They know that's what's going to happen, so they don't tell you the truth until a long period of time. But let me read a few of Joseph Smith's own quotes to you. This is the founder of Mormonism himself. This is what he said, and I quote his own words here. God Himself was once as we are now, and as an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God, and to know that He was once a man like us. Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves, the same as all gods have done before you. Does that sound like the biblical God? The biblical Christ? He says things like he's an exalted man. He was a man like us. You've got to learn to be gods. Joseph Smith added here, Many men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say that is a strange God anyhow. Three and one and one and three. It is a curious organization. Here's the founder of Mormonism saying that the triune God of the Scripture is a strange God. Again, to him, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were three separate gods. Three different gods. You say, well, that may be what Joseph Smith believed. Surely the Mormons don't believe that today. Yes, they do. I've sat down with many Mormon missionaries and I always ask them, do you believe this? And they say, yep, that's what they believe. It's the common dogma of the LDS church. That's the wrong God. It's the wrong Christ. That's satanic deception. The fact that God the Father is not a man is clear in Scripture. Numbers 23.19 says this. Very simple. This is a profound statement. Listen to this one. God is not a man. God, Maybe they missed that one. God is not a man that He should lie. Wait a minute. It's very ironic that this must be the very thing He's lying about if Mormonism is true. But God is not a man. <coughs> In John 4.24, what did Jesus say about God? God is what? Spirit. God is spirit. And Jesus said in Luke 24.39, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. So God is not a man, God is spirit, and a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. That is not the God of Mormonism. That is a different God. The Mormon God is a false God. And the idea that there are many, many gods is also refuted over and over again in Scripture. Let's give you two examples. 1 Corinthians 8.4, Paul says, There is no God but one. It's pretty clear to me. If that isn't clear enough, listen to what God Himself said in Isaiah 43.10. Before me there is no God formed, and there will be none after me. No God. God Himself asserts that there is no God before Him or after Him, not even a created God. Not even a formed God. He alone is God. That is the biblical God. And then, the, the idea that Jesus and the Father are separate gods is also refuted in Scripture. You go to chapter 5 for a minute, 1 John 5, verse 20. This is how John ends the letter. Chapter 5, verse 20. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal light. Who is? His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. 
In verse 21, he says this, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. He begins the book by asserting the deity of Christ. He ends the book by asserting the deity of Christ. And you must guard yourself from any idols, he says. Any God that is not Jesus is no God at all. Clearly then, the Mormons have the wrong God. They pervade Christological error. They are false teachers teaching from the spirit of Satan and they must be rejected. One more, one more. Roman Catholicism. What do the Roman Catholics teach about Christ? Well, they teach that Jesus is fully God and fully man. They teach the doctrine of the Trinity, the one God, three persons. They get much right about the person of Christ. So surely they must be true teachers. Surely this must be the truth. Surely they pass the Christological test, right? The answer is no. The answer is no. Because even though they get much right about the person of Christ, yet they deny the work of Christ. They deny the work of Christ. Even though they acknowledge His full deity and true humanity, they undercut His saving sufficiency. In Roman Catholicism, salvation is not by faith alone in Christ alone. It's a combination of faith and works. Their own catechism says this, All men may attain salvation through faith, baptism, and the observance of the commandments. That's faith and works. That's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. The idea is Jesus died for me. I need to believe in Him, but I also need to merit, uh, gain enough merit to enter into heaven. I've got to be baptized. I've got to keep the law. I've got to avoid mortal sins. I need to go to confession. I need to take the Eucharist. And all of that directly contributes to my salvation. It's working with God. And even after all of that, there's still a good chance I'm not going to have enough merit and I'll have to go to purgatory anyway and be purged before I'm finally fit for heaven. And some people, by the way, die with too much merit and can give it away to others. That is the system of Roman Catholicism. That is an outright denial of the Gospel. It undermines the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. It cancels the cross. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. To tell us I paid in full. I don't need to add my works, my good deeds, my religiosity, my ceremonies to the finished work of the Savior. As if it wasn't enough. That is blasphemy. It's rank heresy. John Calvin commenting on this very passage put it this way. As then the ancient heretics departed from the faith, in one instance by denying the divine, and in another by denying the human nature of Christ, so do the papists at this day, that is the Romanists, the Roman Catholic Church. Though they confess Christ to be God and man, yet they by no means retain the confession which the apostle requires, because they rob Christ of his own merit. For where free will, merits of works, fictitious modes of worship, satisfactions, and the advocacy of saints are set up, how very little remains for Christ. Calvin was right. That's what the Roman Catholic system does. I'm not saying there are no true believers in the Roman Catholic Church. There could be. But if they are, they don't believe the hogwash being propagated by the Roman Catholic Church. And hopefully, in God's grace, He'll eventually bring them out. But anyone who believes that has been bewitched in the language of Galatians 3 by a false gospel. 
They're doing what Paul rebuked the Corinthians for in 2 Corinthians 11. They're putting up with people preaching a different gospel and they're bearing with it beautifully. That is a lack of discernment. Just as the Gnostic heretics denied the truth about Christ in the first century, so the Roman Catholics do it today in a different way. They don't deny His person, they deny His work. And therefore, they too have an erroneous Christology. They too fell the Christological test. Ephesians 2 makes it crystal clear we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And Galatians 1 says unequivocally, if anyone preaches any other gospel, let him be anathema, damned, devoted to eternal destruction. And all who believe and propagate the false gospel of Roman Catholicism fall into that category. So like the Mormons and like the Jehovah's Witnesses, like the heretics in the first century, they fell test number one. So that's the test applied. Kind of bring it down to a practical level. But we have a command to test the spirits. We have a cause for testing the spirits. And we have criteria for testing the spirits. And criteria number one is the Christological test. What do they say about the person and work of Christ? A denial of His full deity, true humanity, or saving sufficiency renders one a false teacher who doesn't teach from the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of error. That, John says, is the Spirit of the Antichrist. In John 16.14, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify Me. He will glorify Me. For He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. So if one's message doesn't glorify Christ by affirming the truth about Him, that message does not come from the Holy Spirit, but from satanic spirits. And therefore it must be rejected. Next week we'll consider the second part of the criteria, that is the bibliological test. But for now, brothers and sisters, let us be discerning. May we test the spirits. May we hold fast to the truth about Christ for our good for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its truth, its power, its authority, its clarity. We know that we live in the midst of a dark world where there are seemingly lies on every side. There are lies from false religions. There are lies from politicians. But perhaps the most deceitful and deceptive lies are the ones that come from professing Christians, cult members. And Lord, I pray that You would give each of us grace to avoid being bewitched by such heretics. We love them. We want them to be saved out of their deception. And we also want to avoid their deception ourselves. And we know that You will keep us from that if we're Your people. But You keep us from that deception by our Spirit-empowered discernment and our Spirit-empowered effort to continue to pursue Christ. And so I pray You would help each and every one of us this morning to do just that. We pray that You would continue to give us clarity and, and eyes to see the beauty and the majesty of Your Son and that we would hold fast to Him. And Lord, as we continue our worship this morning through the Lord's Supper, as we continue our worship through even fellowshipping together around a meal, we pray You would bless it 
We pray that You would uh, make our fellowship and our conversation sweet and Christ-centered and God-exalting, and that You would honor Yourself in our midst. And we pray these things for Your glory. Amen.